Would you mind standing with me in honor of God's word? We are in a series called Uniquely Luke. All of these passages we've been going through all year are only in Luke's gospel. And today is like my life message today. And so it's, it's the next text up, Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Now, as they were traveling along, He, Jesus, entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, the ESV says, with her much serving. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you. You have a word today. Could it pierce our hearts? Lord, it will be easy to understand for our minds But God, I I pray that you would communicate your heart in such a way, Lord, that everybody knows they've had an encounter with God. Come and do what only you can do. Holy Spirit, this is your service. I'm your vessel. I'm your mouthpiece. Come and speak and change us all, we pray, for, for your glory and for our good, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So the title of the message is Living at Jesus' Feet. And point one is the bad part. The NAS says that Mary has chosen the good part and it will not be taken from her. And some of the other translations like the NIV say Mary has chosen what is best. In this instance, the NAS translates it the best It means part, as in parts of a whole. The implication is that Martha has the bad part. She didn't choose the bad part, but she has the bad part. Mary has the good part. This implication that that you can be a Christian and have the bad part is really, really important. And so I want to talk about what the bad part looks like. All right, so here it is. Martha has welcomed Jesus into her home. Jesus is on the inside. But part of the bad part is she has not positioned herself close to Jesus. She is not at Jesus' feet. She is going back and forth, doing all kinds of stuff, and she is not at his feet, and so Mary is listening to his word. Martha knows that he's speaking. But she gets a little here, a little there, and Jesus is speaking, and Jesus is here, but she's missing what is happening, what Jesus is speaking, because she's not close enough to hear what he's saying. Now, the scripture says she is distracted by her many 
preparations, uh, and, and some translations, by her much service. That she, wh- why does it say many and why does it say much service? She is very conscious of how much work she's doing. She's very conscious of the work she's doing, the sacrifice she's making, what she is giving. It has become the center of her Christianity instead of the one who she is serving, the one who she is giving to, the one who she is making a sacrifice. Her preparations and her work have become the center of her Christianity instead of the one she's doing it for. And then she's got this little internal scoreboard where she has to keep track of how everybody else is doing. And in her mind, Mary's not doing very good. We got a lot of work here. We got little help and you're failing. And not only does she have a scoreboard on Mary, she has a scoreboard on Jesus. Jesus, why are you doing anything? You could speak to her. You, you've got pull here. What, what are you doing? I'm, can't you see what's going on? So she's got this scoreboard and the only one that's doing a lot is her. But more than anything, the feeling you get in this text is that Martha's just tired. She's tired. She just kind of bursts out with this. You know, who knows how long they've been working. Mary was serving with her for a while, but Mary's not serving. There's more work to be done. And she's just like, Lord, tell somebody to help me. I am tired. Instead of being filled with the strength that comes from the joy of the Lord, she's buried by her responsibilities and the seeming failure of others. So here's my question for you today. If you had to be gut-wrenchingly honest, do you have the bad part today? Are you tired? Do you feel like it's all about how much you're doing, how much you're giving, how much you're sacrificing, and and that, that what you're doing isn't enough to cover everything? And do you feel like you've got this little internal scoreboard where you're keeping track of everybody else. Spouse isn't doing good. Children aren't doing good. Why can't they be better? Why can't they do this? Why can't the church isn't doing enough? Why can't the church do more? If everybody would do more, da, da, da. The government's certainly not doing enough. And if they, and and you got this little, Jesus said, Martha, you're worried and bothered about many things. Martha is keeping track of a lot of stuff. And a lot of how everyone else is doing, everyone else is responding. And this is, this wears you down. It exhausts you. Is that you? Is that a description of your Christianity right now? If it is, you're in good company. One of the greatest guys in the Bible is Elijah. And in 1 Kings 19, we find Elijah And he's got the bad part. He is so tired and so exhausted that he, in just a few verses before the one we're going to read, he says, I'm done. Take me home. My my days are done, God. Take my life. 
And so he goes into this cave and God follows him into this cave and, and God speaks to him and says, what, 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 why are you in this cave? And he explains, I'll tell you why I'm in here. Uh, because I have been very zealous for you. I have served you. I've worked my tail off for you. Uh, but here's what I get for it. I'm the only one left. I'm the only one serving. I'm the only one that's faithful. I'm the only one. All my work, all my zeal. Here's what he's implying. God, what have you been doing? I'm the only one faithful. I'm the only one left. Isn't it interesting that Martha still has her prayer life? She is telling Jesus. She's talking to Jesus about what everybody else isn't doing but she's not listening to God. She's talking to him, but she's no longer listening. Elijah is talking to God. He's telling God what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with him, what's wrong with, but, but, he, but he isn't listening anymore. So God says to him this, and he's, he's not saying it just to Elijah. He says it to all of us. I need you to leave this cave of discouragement, and I want you to go out on a ledge, and I want you to get so close to me that you can hear my whisper, because I've got something I'm going to say. I've got something I'm going to speak to you. So he goes out there, and the whisper of God comes, and here's what God says. I have got 7,000 in Israel that have not bowed to Baal. You think you're the only one left. You think I'm not moving in anybody else except for you. I am doing 7,000 times more than you think I'm doing. Number two, you're all worried about Jezebel. Like, as if I don't know about Jezebel and all the evil Jezebel's brought and all the darkness and, and, and she needs to be confronted and somebody needs to deal with her and I tried and it didn't work and, and there's all this darkness in the land and nobody's doing anything about it. And God's like, I know all about Jezebel. In fact, I need you to leave this discouraged place you're in and I need you to go anoint Jehu because Jehu's going to take care of Jezebel. I've got a plan for Jezebel. And you've been all concerned about revival and you thought the revival was going to come and it was all, you had an idea of how it was going to go and, and God, why aren't you doing anything? And he's like, I actually have a plan for revival, but I can't forward it with you in this cave. I need you to go out and anoint Elisha. It's going to come in my time, in my way through who I choose. Mr. Elijah, I don't need your help running the world. I don't need your help running my kingdom. You are way above your pay grade right now. And I need you to humble yourself, position yourself close enough to hear my whisper, and you and I will do the next thing, the next right thing thing. So that's the bad part. Here's the good part. The Bible says that Mary's positioned herself at the Lord's feet close enough to listen to his word. The good part is not just an event. It is a lifestyle that has reorganized itself to live close enough to God 
that I can listen to what God is saying, that I can, all the other voices that are very loud, the enemy is like a, a roaring lion in the midst of all the noise, I have positioned myself close enough to hear the whisper of God so that I can hear it, I can hear what God's saying to me, to, to change me, what he's saying for me, to promise me, what he's saying for ministry, what he wants to do through me. I am living close enough to God that I can hear what God is saying. Here's, here's Matthew 4.4. 4. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, word there, there's two descriptions of God's word. One is God's logos. God's logos is his, his whole counsel. The Bible is the whole counsel of God. This is his logos, which really is revealing Jesus. Jesus is the logos. Jesus is the whole word of God, okay? Everything about him is the whole word of God. But that's not the word used here. It's, it's the rhema. It's God's present word. Not, not every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God, but every word that is proceeding. It is the now word. It's what God's saying right now. It is God's whisper for your life right now. That he says, this is how people are supposed to live. They're supposed to live close enough to God that they can hear the proceeding word right now of what God wants for them. That's where Mary is. Mary has, has reorganized her life. And, and she's so close to Jesus, she's not worried and bothered about many things. She's not, she doesn't, she has no scoreboard on Martha. <laughs> she's got enough with Jesus right here. She's not worried about what Martha's doing or what Martha isn't doing. She is focusing on her own relationship with God and doesn't have to keep score of how everybody else is doing with God. Peter says when God, Jesus speaks to him the rhema of calling him into ministry and, and how he's going to die. And, and Peter says, what about him speaking to John? And Jesus says, whether he lives or dies, what's that to you? You don't have to keep score on how John is doing. You follow me. Reorganize your life to get close enough that you're so enamored with me that you're not everybody else's judge and policeman. Living at Jesus' feet, it's not an event. It is a lifestyle. She is, Jesus is alluding to David here when he says one thing is necessary. This is an allusion to Psalm 27, verse four. David says, one thing have I desired and that will I seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord. I might, I might live there. I might continually be there, that I might behold the beauty of God, that I might meditate in the temple. This is, this is David's declaration of his life. This is what the one thing is, is, is this desire to be with God, to live in God's presence, to be close enough to hear his word and listen to his word and apply his word and, and that the life would be all around this. David is invited to this. Psalm 27, 8, this is a time in his life that he's being chased by Saul. He's in this cave. There's an army chasing him. All of his promises are unfulfilled, and God comes to him and says, seek my face. David hears it in his heart. God is saying, seek my face. 
And David says, your face, oh God, I will seek. I will choose you as my highest good. I will choose you first. And this is, this is a lifestyle around seeking God. So it turns out that this invitation that he hears from God, seek my face, that came right from God, seek my face. This is what is happening in our text. Jesus is actually inviting Martha to make a choice. Mary's already chosen it. Martha, you're not a victim. Whenever, you're, whenever you got the bad part, you think you're a victim. And, and he, what he's saying is, no, you're not a victim. You have a choice. Mary chose this. You have a choice. I'm inviting you, Martha. Comes right from the, 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 the mouth of God. I'm inviting you to something. I'm inviting you to something radical. Now, you cannot choose this without delight. You can't. David says in Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. He's saying, you make God your biggest prize. You make who he is your biggest prize and all the other things will go, he'll take care of all of them. But you have to make God your delight. Why is it that you have to make God your delight? Because you can't do your free time if you don't delight in something. You can do your duty. And, and oftentimes people put, they want to put God first. And God's first. And then, uh, you know, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to have my quiet time. I'm going to serve and do this. And then I get to do what I want to do. Praise God. But I put God first. God doesn't want to be first. He wants to be center. He wants to be center of everything. He wants to be central to your entertainment, central to your, your sports, central, central to your church, central, central, central. He wants to be, and you can only do that if you're having fun. You can only do that if he's your delight. And so this, this invitation is to choose God, delight yourself in the Lord, make a decision that God himself will be your greatest delight. That it won't be what he can do for you, that's his hand, but his face, that who he is. Uh, God, I don't even understand this, but I want you to be my greatest delight. I want to find delight in you. Honestly, you can't choose it if God's just your duty. Now, there's a, there's a second part of this delight thing, and you, you, you can't get it without this part. It turns out, God delights in some ways in all of his children. But his greatest delight is in those who choose him as their primary delight. And David, David's heart is filled with this. Look at, look at Psalm 18, 19. He says this, he brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. David is absolutely convinced that he is the delight of God. He is what God was looking for. Did you know that the word Eden means delight? This is why God made us, to, to be his delight, for us to find our delight in him. So one of the greatest miracles today is the house of prayer down in Kansas City. It's been going for 24 years now, 24-7 prayer. <laughs> 
around the clock. Young people from all over the world coming together and taking prayer shifts. There's 84 two-hour prayer meetings a week. Christmas, Easter, this fire has been burning. And the way that it came to be was way back in 1982 and 83. There were all these angelic visitations and crazy prophetic events. And God said, I'm going to raise up a prayer meeting that is going to pray revival into America. And it's going to be day and night. And, but it didn't start until 1999. They were doing prayer meeting in the morning, prayer meeting at night, prayer meeting at noon. But they didn't go 24-7 until 1999 because something had to happen first. So this is the mid-90s. Mike Bickle, who's the head of this movement, who is one of my heroes. Mike has this dream. And in this dream... He's in the Kansas City Convention Center, thousands and thousands of youth, and he's preaching a sermon that has only one word in it, and that word is Hephzibah. And he sees himself saying, Hephzibah from the middle, Hephzibah from the right, Hephzibah from the left, and that's the whole sermon. And he wakes up, and he's like, Hephzibah, 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 that's in the Bible. I know, I know I've seen that word before. And so he, he's, he's looking in the Bible, his favorite verse, in fact, he's an intercessor, and his, his life verse is Isaiah 62, verse 6 where God says, I'm going to set watchmen on the wall that will cry out to me day and night until Jerusalem is the praise of the whole earth. Jerusalem representing God's people. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to raise up prayer, night and day prayer, that's going to press through until my people are the praise of the whole earth, that, that the glory of God will be seen again on the people of God. And so that's his favorite verse. He's looking all over for Hephzibah, 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 can't find it goes to a concordance, and it says Isaiah 62, 4 and 5. It's the two verses before his favorite verse. Here, here it is. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah, which means delight, and your land Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you, and your land will be married. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. And, the, and, 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 and God spoke to Mike and he said this, they will never go 24-7 until they know that I delight in them in their brokenness. The power to do this again and again, year after year, day after day, is in knowing that my delight is in them right now, in in their brokenness. They have set themselves apart to seek me, but they fail in a thousand different ways. And that failure can make it feel like God's changed his opinion about me or God's, God's displeased with me. And he says, I need them to know that in their weakness, my delight is in them. I need delight to become part of their identity. He said re the revival can't be their reward. The relationship has to be their reward. The, the, it, it can't be what, some great thing that God's going to do. The, the reward has to be right in the prayer meeting that Jesus and I are doing something together. You don't have to solve everybody's problems. You don't have to solve your children's problems or your parents' problems or, your, or, or the, the country's problems. You, you get to just do the next right thing with Jesus. You just reorganize your life around listening to him, doing the next thing that pleases him, and then enjoy that his delight is in you and that your delight is in him. It's, it's a fountain that never stops giving. 
The joy of the Lord is our strength. This is the good part. Don't wait for the party. Don't wait for the, I will rejoice as soon as that happens and this happens and that happens. Stop it. You need to be at the party right now. You, 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 you need to receive his love now. You need to receive his delight right now. It is the engine to go to have a lifestyle of choosing him. All right, so point three, last point. One thing is necessary. So I want to tell you how I first encountered this verse because it wasn't while I was reading the Bible. I got saved in 1981 and had an experience with the Holy Spirit where I got a, a new prayer language. And the people that I was with, God loved them. They kicked me out of their group because they didn't believe in that and whatever. So I had to find a new group. My roommate was with me and, and we found this church. It's called Madison Gospel Tabernacle. Well, we just thought this place was the greatest thing ever. And at that time, there was a revival going on here among the young adults we didn't know, I mean, we didn't, we didn't even know the words revival, but there was something happening and, and there was a bus that would pick us up down on campus and picked us up at three different places and th- we'd have 40, 40 students on that bus to get out here and 40 more were here and it was a group of 80, sometimes it got over 100, it was just electric. I couldn't wait to get to church. The bus brought us to to church. It brought us to Sunday school. It brought us on Thursday nights. It was just an amazing time. Well, in 1989, I was now the college and career pastor. I was in charge of this same group, and it was a group of about 40, and I got this idea, and it was from all of my past, this is how I experienced it, I got, an, I got a plan for the campus. And here's how the plan went. Over the summer, I met Pastor Heckman, let me meet with the elders, and I convinced the elders to give me a bus. My wife and I met on that bus. We needed a bus. We needed, to, we needed a way for these kids to get out there. And so, so I get the bus approved. I, I get an approved bus driver because it, by, the, by 89, you needed to have an actual bus driver that had a bus driver license. When I, got, when, when I first was getting picked up, I was in the group for two weeks and they were looking for bus drivers. I signed up. I'm 20 years old. I am driving a bus down to that campus in and out of traffic, picking up kids. It's a miracle no one died, honestly. <laughs> honestly. So, but, but at this time, you have to have a licensed bus driver. And so I've, I've, I've got that all secure. Now I need to get students. So I got saved when I was a freshman in college. I was in Celery B, down in the dorms. And because I got saved as a freshman, all four years, I ran Bible studies out of my dorm room and it was just a great magnet. So I've got the plan. I've just got the way we're gonna do it. We're gonna do this dorm survival kit. We're gonna set it up in Gordon Commons. Gordon Commons is a place that Celery eats and Witty Hall eats. All the students come through here and we've got this this survival kit, we, we spared no expense. We bought a Walkman and all these things that would be cool in a dorm room and, and spent about $200 on it. And anybody that would go past this, and they had to go past it to eat, would want what was in this dorm survival kit. Well, here's how you get it. You have to fill out this little survey. 
and we will raffle it. We're going to choose one winner at the end. And so, but you have to fill out this little survey, and it's on fear, because our first series is going to be on the subject of fear. And what are you afraid of? And how were you brought up in church? And would you be willing to go to a meeting that addresses fear and God's ability to deal with our fears? And so like 200 people do the raffle. They have to put their phone number because if they don't put their phone number, they can't get called if they win. So we've got everybody's phone number. And now I'm going to call the 60 of the 200 said, yes, I will come to a meeting. I will come to a meeting on fear. And they're all freshmen. They've got nothing else to do. They don't know lots of people. So this is our opportunity. So I'm, I purpose, I'm going to call all 60 and get them to this meeting. So I call all 60. The group's only 40. And I have 20 people promising to come that Thursday night. Wow. This is amazing. At Thursday night, Thursday night's down on campus, but uh, on Thursday night, we'll give them the information where the bus picks up so that they can come on Sundays and they can, they can come out to the church. And, and so I've got it all, it's all set up. And uh, so Thursday night comes, we have eight new people there that Thursday night. Seven of them are from all of my work and all of my calling. I'm like, okay, seven, it's disappointing, but... Still seven. So I talk to the seven and get them the information and, and uh, the eighth one too, but the seven are all college students and where the bus is going to pick up and then the bus driver goes down to pick up the, the, the students and there's one student and it's not a student. It's somebody that's already in our group, somebody that could have got a ride from anybody. <laughs> and I have done all of this work, all of this labor, and this is the result. And so I keep my quiet. And Pastor Heckman and I, at the time, were going down to Kankakee, Illinois, to Olivet Nazarene to do our master's together. And it, it happened to be that next week. And so Monday, we go down there. We do classes the whole day. And then everybody's going to go out to eat afterwards. I say, guys, I'm not going to go out to eat. I've got something I need to do. And I've been ready. I've been ready all day. I'm about to tell God how, how I feel. And so everybody leaves. I'm alone in this dorm room. I've got all the lights off and I'm just having it out with God. I'm like, do you have any idea how much work I did last week? It was all for you. It was all for the kingdom. I got that bus. I put everything, I made the door. Everything was for you. And you, had, you can't let one student be picked up. Are you kidding me? God spoke to me. Two sentences. And these are just clear thoughts in my mind. That's was an audible, just came very clear in my mind. In doing many things, you have neglected the one thing that's necessary. That was the first line. And it sounded to me like it was something in the Bible. I didn't know this passage at that time. But what struck me is the word necessary. <laughs> you know what necessary means? Non-optional. It's like you can't skip this one thing and do a bunch of other things. Like, whatever else you do, you have to do this thing. It is necessary. The second line was this. I am not calling you to do anything for me. Everything I'm calling you to do, I'm calling you to do with me. 
So that reoriented me. It reoriented my Christianity. I found Luke 10, 38 through 42. It's become a life verse. I've, I've got a devotional out there called One Thing, Daily Devotions to Inspire Intimacy with God. My, it, it, it's, a, it's a life verse. It's a framing verse for, for my life. But there's also a promise for those that choose the one thing. There's a promise that no one else gets. But if you choose the one thing, if you choose this lifestyle that is so close to Jesus that you can hear his word and you choose it, there's a promise that that God makes to you. Here it is. Mary has chosen the good part and I'm going to make sure it's never taken from her. What she chooses in human weakness, I will protect with divine faithfulness. And so in my own way, I chose the one thing back then and God has had to bring me back to it many, many times. In 2013, City Church now exists and I am like too little butter spread over too much bread. I'm exhausted. I am, I'm not doing well. And the elders give me a sabbatical and So Alice and I go several different places, but the very last week, we go to a place in Redding, California, Bethel, that that is in the midst of revival. And everybody out there is, it's massive and every, every speaker's got huge ministries and books and Yet in the midst of all of this, I hear their, their, one of their pastors, Chris Gore, the very first meeting, he talks about the ease of heaven. And it just caught me, the, the ease of heaven, that just seems so, so right. And then every speaker, it was a healing conference, and every speaker, which were different pastors on their staff, said something like this, if you host the presence of God, you don't have to be that good at your job. Because God's really good at his job. Can that be true? Can it be true that if our main job and attention is about reorienting our life around living close to him, close enough to hear his whisper, is it true that we don't actually have to be that great, that that he will be great on our behalf? Is is that actually true? Is that? Can you really, in this world where there's so many needs and so many things going on, can can only one thing be necessary? Is that possibly true? So here is John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, what Jesus is saying is you can do nothing of eternal value. You can do nothing that will last longer than your lifetime. Because we've already found out from Martha, you can do a lot without abiding in him. You can do a lot on your own. But you can't do anything that's going to last. So I want to tell you the story about the eighth person. So there were eight new people. Seven came in response to my call and all of my work. Now, here's the funny thing about those seven. That was the only meeting they came to. They, I never saw any of the seven again. It's the only meeting they came to, never came back. Never came to church, none of that. So here's the eighth person. 
I am in the midst of calling my 60 people and my secretary calls. I'm in between calls and she calls and she says, Tom, there's, there's a lady on the voice, on the, on the phone and she is hearing voices and she wants to talk to a pastor and everybody else is gone. Can't, do you have time for this? And I'm like, just to be honest, I'm like, no. I'm sorry that lady is hearing voices. I'm doing really important stuff right now and I've, I don't have time for this. The problem is I'm a pastor. Pastors have to be nice. They can't say what they think. And so I'm like, sure, I'll take the call. And so I talk to her and she tells me what's going on and the, the voices and she's not a student. She works down at the university bookstore, but she'd really like to meet soon. And I'm like, I don't like where this is going. I don't have time for it. I have a feeling I'll be at the meeting and she won't be. And it's just going to be this big distraction. And I'm like, all right, all right, let's meet at Calvary Lutheran tomorrow. She gave me her break time. I said, I will... I will be there. And so honestly, I don't even think she's going to show up. I bring stuff that I can work on because I've got to speak on fear because this big meeting's coming up and da 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 And, uh, uh, but there she is. She's there. And she tells me what her life is like and the way she has suffered. And I get to tell her a little about the spiritual world. We get to pray about the demonic stuff that's going on. But most importantly, she prays to accept Christ. And she comes that Thursday night. Well, she didn't just come that Thursday night. She came every Thursday night. In fact, she started coming to this church. In fact, it's 34 years later. She was here Tuesday night. I greeted her on her way into the movie on Tuesday night. The one thing God did that week lasts. It'll last for all eternity. And the 8,000 things I did that week are all gone. They're just gone like in a puff of smoke. And you say, well, pastor, that's great. You know, and I know that Jesus loves ministry and he loves souls. And so, uh, but I don't, I'm not in the ministry and I need to work. I can see Jesus helping your job. Does he help my job? Well, there's a story in Luke chapter 5. Peter has fished all night long. He's a fisherman. He's, this is how he pays the wages. This is how he takes care of his family. And he's caught nothing. And then Jesus calls him to take some time out just to listen to him speak. And he uses Peter's boat and Peter is forced to just sit at Jesus' feet. And when Jesus gets done with the sermon, he says, Peter, put the boat back out. Put the boat back out. Put your nets down one more time. Peter says, it's not going to work. I'm a fisherman, you're a carpenter. It's not going to work. <laughs> but because you're saying it, I'll do it. And no sooner does he put the nets in than they're filled with fish. So many, they can, they can bear, the other boats have to come and they're literally sinking. The catch is so big. God knows about your job. God knows about either your sales numbers and your sales goals. And he knows whatever you've got going. He knows about it. And he wants to help you. You don't have to be that great at your job. 
You don't have to be that great at parenting. He'll help you host his presence. You don't have to be that great of a Christian. Just host his presence. He will help you. I was reading something this week. I thought it was so great. And it was talking about Christianity being both incremental and exponential. Incremental and exponential. And, and what his point was, was this. Is that our part, oftentimes, God requires us to do it incrementally, like a seed. Like we plant the seed, and we water the seed, and we weed the seed, and then we have to persevere when it's hard, and that it will bring forth fruit, and that it will be God's work, and it will be something beautiful, and it will be something we participated in, and even though it took a long time, and we rejoice as God does something incrementally. But sometimes, he also does things exponentially. Sometimes, he takes the five loaves and the two fish and just does a miracle and it's all at once and it's powerful and it's amazing. And that too testifies of the kingdom of God. Both the incremental and the exponential testify of the kingdom of God. But here's the rub. We don't get to choose which one. We are just called to get out of the cave of our own discouragement and do the next right thing. God, I don't know what to do with these kids. Okay, get close enough to listen and hear what God says. You only have to do the next right thing. What should I do with these kids? Uh, nothing. They're mine. Trust me. God, please don't ask me to do nothing. You know how I want to do something. You know, I just, I, I want to say something. I want, no, do the next right thing. Hear it, listen to it, and obey it. What, what's the next right thing to do in my business? The business is failing. I don't know what I should do. Just find out what the next right thing is and just do that. Results are above your pay grade. Get happy in God and do the next right thing. 